Welcome everyone to another episode of Trek Talk with Tech and Kirk. I'm Techman 16, and today we're going to talk about something a little bit differently. We have Josh back with us today. Hey, Josh, how you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, man. Good. Uh, today we're going to talk about Josh's new book that's uh, been published now. It's called Space Age Chronicles Mars. The description for the ebook on Amazon is in the description, but he's also got a physical copy that you can buy, and he'll sign it for you on his restaurant store, also in the description here. And if you like the, pod- the podcast today, please subscribe, like, comment, do all those things that everybody asks of you in order to uh, in order to get that algorithm up. But uh, Josh, man, thanks for taking the time today. I, I uh, am excited to talk to you about this. Um, I read your book. It was a really fun read. I... Uh, I was going to read it in stages in order to give you my honest opinion of it. But what ended up happening is I just, uh, I just kind of read all the way through it. I realized, Oh my God. Oh, I'm done with the book. So it was, it was really fun to read. I uh, totally love the, uh, the sci-fi aspect, obviously Star Trek podcast. So I got to ask you, how did the book come about as a sci-fi story? Well, thanks for having me here. Um, the uh, when I was a kid, I had a very active imagination, and I even had a like a playroom in the basement of my house, and I created a Martian colony because I've always had my eyes set on Mars. I've always had my head up in space, um, even before I even started watching Star Trek. I thought about it, so I had built this like Martian colony of. Um, with with all my toys in my basement and i created my own superhero too called super socket and um using like micro machines and stuff like uh uh hot wheels cars and stuff like that i went and you know had these guys being superheroes stopping crime and stuff on the martian colony and it was kind of like a batman-esque thing of uh it was a rich guy who was very smart always creating new technologies and his friends who all specialized in different technologies and things and they would go and work together as a team to solve these problems on mars and so i thought that was a really cool idea and i decided when i was uh commuting to and from work uh on the train I had time to kill, and I thought of writing this story. Uh, I wrote it on uh, that first Motorola Droid smartphone with the slide-out physical QWERTY keyboard. So I would just write it on that, um, go taking the train every day. Okay, I was about to say, you were driving and and typing this story? That's dedicated. No, 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 I, I was taking the train. So I had like an hour and a half train ride each way to kill every day. That's a little safer. (laughs) <laughs> definitely um so so super socket was was he like like an inspector gadget is he supposedly goofy or was he very serious uh, he was a serious inventor who just wanted to like i say it was like batman kind of where he he took his job seriously uh wanted to look after everyone protect them and created really cool gadgets and stuff so that he could do that and then he would work together with his family and his friends so that they could all work together on it. So how did that evolve from a superhero into kind of a, a drama? Well, as I was writing it, I was thinking, you know, this was the basis for all of it. And, of course, with any good villain you know, they have to feel that they're the good guys. And so when I started writing the book, um, I I wanted to write it at first from the perspective of what's happening, who is this bad guy, and, and what does he have to do with Mars, and how does he get there? So I had to first create the bad guy and figure out how to get him to Mars. before you, so, so that's, of course, you know, the first chapter. And um, then I wanted to discuss 
as I introduced the the hero, I wanted to introduce him with his family and his relationship with his family and build up that that bond. Uh, you know, I, I'm very close with my family and my friends. So to me, it's all one relationship. And that's where I, you know, was going what, with what I know. And um, I, then, I don't know, halfway through it, I'm thinking to myself, this book has gotten very serious. I'm not sure if I can just go and put spandex on him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so most writers usually write something that's familiar to them. I, I don't think you're an exception to that. So let's let's get into a little bit into the book, if you will. Um, and feel free to correct me because there there was a lot of things and a lot of moving pieces that I don't think I uh, got all of them. But the main colony is on Mars. It's called Frontier Colony. Is that right? Yes. So Frontier Colony is, uh, I would say it's more like a prosperous type of utopia where they export metals back to Earth. And at this point, Earth has become overcrowded. Uh, you said, I believe there were 12 billion people living on the uh, on the planet. And there was a mandatory childbirth. There was mandatory who could come in and leave. Kind of reminds me of uh, Denobula on uh, on Star Trek Enterprise, where you got too many Denobulans living on one continent. Why uh, why did you go down that path, of having an overpopulated Earth and the problem? You know, the colonies are seem seem to be kind of the they have it all. They could do what they want. We're stuck kind of mentality. Um. Well. When you look at what's going on today, now, granted, I started writing this book in 2007. Um, we were, it, it was 2007, 2008. We were at the beginning of that huge recession, um, you know, the stock market dropping and everything. Uh, the dollar was dropping. We had no idea what the future was going to hold, and overpopulation is become has been becoming an issue for decades pollution and climate change has become issues for decades so you know you have a lot of like sci-fi shows and movies that all recognize that and say you know these are issues that we're having what's going to happen to our world in 100 years 200 years 300 years and so i was saying well what's going to happen in 100 years after all this and the fact that bureaucracy goes very slowly and companies tend to move faster. And then some companies, depending on what their products are and what their you know, goals are, if it's just pure greed and they're cutting corners and adding to the pollution problem, or if they are doing what they can to... Uh, use their company to help better and advance humanity. Um, you can then go and look at those and say, how does it benefit businesses to look into space? So I reference some companies who I do see always looking at arterial solutions that can both benefit humanity, but also make them money. Cause you know, they are companies, they do want to make their money. What what does both for them? So in this, in this, you have a lack of resources on Earth, and so you have to look elsewhere to export those resources in order to continue the infrastructure that Earth maintains for everybody else. Exactly. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but uh, the average asteroid has, a single asteroid has 10 times the metals and minerals that can be found on Earth. The moon has a ton of metals and minerals that we don't have in the same quantity here on Earth. Other things such as like fossil fuels, um, um, diamonds, those things obviously aren't going to be found out there. But other things such as hydrogen fuels can be. 
using uh, ice and water to create energy. Very abundant in space. So you can go and then take mining uh, a mining colony on the moon, and it's going to be very prosperous to be sending things back down to Earth. And so then, especially if in 100 years from now, we've depleted so much of our minerals. I mean, we're depleting them today. So if we're depleting them today, what's to say they won't be even worse next year? Uh, in a hundred years from now. No, no, and I think you're absolutely right because uh, there is an asteroid I think currently located somewhere near Jupiter that could uh, completely destroy the world economy because it has so much precious metals on there. So I think I think that speaks, to me. which leads exactly. to the, which leads kind of to the next point: uh, overpopulation. There's 12 billion people living on the planet, and you have this. Uh, the, the antagonist of the story, uh, Colonel Eric Cartwright, uh, sounds like Colonel Eric Cartman. Uh, <laughs> and, no uh, no his, Right, no relation, right. But his, uh, his you know, goal is to reduce the, basically to reduce Earth's population through whatever means. And so how did, uh, how did you find the inspiration of that and how did that character come about um, well, I, I was looking at it as when you look at a eco-terrorist, um, someone who would go and do whatever it takes to save the planet. Um, they, you know, like Poison Ivy and Batman and Robin, you know, which was, yes, a bad movie, but um, <laughs> we did make a point of, you know, Poison Ivy goes and gives Bruce Wayne all this, these things that the Wayne Company sh- can do and humanity can do to alleviate the pressures that that humanity puts on the planet, and you know, such as you know, not using air conditioning or heating when, and then he's like, people would freeze to death, and she said, well, it's a necessary sacrifice for humanity. Well, those kinds of sacrifices for humanity, you look at the issues that are plaguing you such as the overpopulation and the pressures that all the all those mouths to feed um all that toilet paper all the, all the water used all those things are consuming the planet in an unsustainable way and no one seems to be doing much about it from a extreme ecological point of view if they're still allowing those things to continue and you look at other things, even in Star Trek, when humanity was referred to as cockroaches spreading across the galaxy. Well, um, in a way, yes, we breed constantly. We've gone from like 1 billion people at the end of the 1800s to 8, 9 billion people today. I think we're at 7. Seven billion. Okay. Well, to add another five billion in a hundred years isn't a huge stretch. Um, the the only stretch on it is how much the planet can actually hold. You know, and that's where you have things such as, you know, if you look at things throughout history, such as um, the Holocaust, the Crusades, um, ecological disasters, um, you know, hurricanes. Uh, major earthquakes, tsunamis. Uh, Some of these things are man-made things that have actually helped contain the the population of the planet. And trust me, as a Jew, it's not easy to say that, but it is a factual statement. Um, and And then you have ecological things, such as the tsunamis and stuff, that help contain the population of the planet. You know, those things are just getting worse and worse with climate change. Um, you know, with terrorism, those things are also an issue. Constant wars, those things, it, those are the things that the planet kind of has to set itself up instead of just constantly growing. Um, so coming back to the to the colonel, um, was he modeled after anybody, or was it just the, you know, 
the ability that, hey, we're really depleting our own resources and somebody needs to do something very drastic. It's more of the latter of he's watching all this happening. He's part of the Earth military and he's having to go around and patrol places that are breaking the laws and, and creating issues that's hurting the planet more and more. And so he sees it as the this is what he has to do in order to um, resolve what's the situation going on. Okay, cool. So let's let's pivot over to the protagonist that you mentioned. Uh, the guy's name is uh, Jacob Fallick, right? Yeah, Jacob Fallick. And he's the inventor and founder of FrontierCon, right? Yes. Uh, well, his father was the founder. He helped do it with him. Right. Okay. All right. And so he's got a family now. And based on his efforts and his inventions, Frontier Colony is probably the leading mining, inventing kind of excavation, exportation, basically to all the other colonies in the sector that includes the moon, uh, various other uh, moons of Jupiter, uh, Earth, and whatnot. And he's, I, I guess, your prototypical protagonist. He wants to do everything in his power to preserve everybody uh, and establish better ways of life, okay? Yes. So, you know, the, the, the synopsis of the book is Colonel Eric Cartwright and his Hawkeye Battalion, which is a, a rogue eco-terrorist group. Uh, they will travel to Mars to utilize the technology on Mars in order to basically invade Earth and, you know, basically diminish the population of Earth so that the planet can survive. Is that right? Yes. And so a lot of this book is about the preparation of Frontier Colony and the Martians against this existential threat. And so talk to me about how did you how did you write this particular part about because there's new technology in this book. Uh, there is uh, and then there's also a, a discovery that I'll let you talk about that it was completely, uh, I think that took me most by surprise in terms of age, structure, and what it relates to. So how did, how did that uh, creative process come about for you? Um, that was definitely something that I was like, you, you needed a mystery. And... There's a lot of, if, if you look at the DNA of humanity, there's a lot of mysteries around us, around our planet and its evolution. Um, our planet's very young compared to the rest of the planets in the solar system. Um, so I always figured, you know, what could those, what, what could create those issues? Um, when you look at Mars itself and Venus too, um, both planets used to be in, uh, slightly different orbits, both of them kind of in the Goldilocks zone around the sun, which is where we are. Uh, that's that area where it's not too hot, not too cold. It's just right for life to be allowed to flourish. A lot of scientists have studied and looked at the fact that Mars at one point was pushed away from the sun, and that's why they believe that life at one point existed there. Um, so it was definitely something that I wanted studied in the book because these guys live there and they're constantly studying. It's all about researching, but at the same time, they are there mining. And everyone who's out there has to have a job. So it's how everyone survives. Everyone needs a job. Everyone needs to be doing something to help the community out. So I had to find a way for them to be doing this research and for it to be something constructive to help out 
the society. Mining new minerals, um, researching new minerals, mining the metals and uh, whatever things they can find on on Mars just made sense. You keep digging and digging and digging, you're going to find something eventually. And Mars doesn't have tectonic plates like Earth does. You know, on Earth, because the tectonic plates are always shifting and moving, it creates earthquakes and things get buried under underground from centuries of those shiftings. On Mars, that doesn't happen. All you have is sandstorms. And so if something was uh, from centuries ago, it might be under like 20, 30, maybe 100 feet of sand. But it's not going to be like buried deep. Whereas if you intentionally put something deep down there, it's going to stay there. It's going to be untouched because there's no shift there. Um, so I figured that would be a really interesting thing to find and discover. And then it creates new questions. And so do you want to talk about that discovery? What the discovery was? I could, but that would defeat the uh, awe, wouldn't it? It would, it would. So you, I guess all you have to read the book to find out what was discovered there on Mars. Um, so pivoting back to the, the, um, the characters a little bit. Now, in, in your book, it's kind of clear cut, you know, who the, who the protagonist and the antagonist are. It was, was that done on purpose? You know, most people aren't, you know, pure evil or pure good. There's always a lot of gray area in between. And was that was that done just to make the book a little more simple, or was it uh, just kind of like a per personal writing preference? Um, I'd say a little bit of both. I was never much of an English scholar. I was always that C student guy. Um, D was for diploma. And um, so I've just read a lot. In fact, uh, Harry Potter is actually what got me into reading, because before that I... I couldn't read anything. Um, so I'm kind of used to that simple way of reading where you just, it gets in your head. It, you're kind of visualizing everything. When I was writing everything, it was all being visualized in my head. And I was like watching each scene go on and just trying to write it down before I forgot what I saw. And um, I think... Creating a way to create that, like, blatant, the, or the complex villain, wasn't something I was going to be strong at. I mean, I think my writing's coming along better. Um, maybe I'll do a better job in the second book. I don't know. Uh, but I, uh, I felt it was very easy to tell who the villain was just because it was supposed to be that... When it started off, it was supposed to be that superhero villain kind of story. And then, of course, that changed slightly. But it's still, at its heart, a supervillain and a hero story. And then I I was trying to help the, super, the villain justify his actions. You know, in his, pay, in his mind, he's not the bad guy. Everyone else is. He has humanity's best interests at heart. I guess I would say it's not necessarily humanity's best interest at heart. He's got Earth's best interest at heart. You're right. Earth's best interest. That's that's better. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, uh, I, I'm just I was just curious because, you know, you know, I've, I think I've said this enough times that my favorite sci fi show is Babylon 5. And that had a ton of complexity in the characters and they evolve from being a uh, cookie cutter, you know, uh, alien comedic relief to unfortunate, uh, either zealot or unfortunate uh, leader. Uh, and, uh, you know, going from buffoon to tragedy. And so, um, that's that's like a little bit of 
complex, you know, it takes a little bit of complexity. It takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of nuance. Whereas, you know, you're, and that, I, I think that's why the book is so easy to read in my opinion. It's because you clearly know what the issues are between the two factions, if you will, the good and the bad. And you can, uh, you know, it's, cl- it's, it's defined clearly in your mind. Whereas, you know, when you're reading the book or when I'm reading the book, there is no sympathy for Cartwright and what he's doing. And there's a lot more sympathy for Frontier Colony to de- defend their homeland, if you will, from an invader, an invader who wants to destroy them, effectively, destroy them, break them, and effectively use them and their technology to harm others. So it's very kind of clear cut, easy to understand in that case. Um, now, in your book, and I'm not going to go too far deep into this, but there are some gory scenes in there. I was not expecting that. So how did those come about? What was the inspiration for those? Um, yeah, some of those scenes even caught myself by surprise when I was writing it. But I, I think I was trying to go with what logically made sense in my messed up head. Um, I mean, you are, I mean, there's a torturing going on in there and they realize, hey, this guy, the torture on this guy is just not working. We have this expert torturer and he just isn't getting the answers we need. What's this guy's weakness? And then they find his weakness and they exploited it so bad, so harshly. And I just was trying to think of what is the worst case scenario? What is what is the thing that's going to make someone just break? Like they can't take that. What would make someone who's been in such a soft environment his whole life completely fall apart? And, and that's what I had to go with on that. You know, uh, with that other scene, um, it's... It just seemed kind of like a horror scene, but it made sense, too, of they're going through space trying to amass an army, and they're hitting every ship that they see like pirates. People who are unex- who are not expecting that, who are just waking up in the middle of a firefight with no answers and, and no responses from anyone who was awake, they're just going to be panicking. And then when they're just seeing people dying and and things blowing up left and right, and they are completely unprepared for that, they just, they freak out. They are scared witless. And I just, I guess I've seen enough horror films to figure out what that's like. You know, like going through a haunted house almost. Except this one, they'll touch you. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, this one kind of threw me for a loop. Now, when I was talking to you before, you mentioned that this is a a series of books, hence the hence the title "Space Age Chronicles." So, yep. what did you think of when you were writing this book? Did you did you already have sequels in mind? Did you already uh, plan the storyline out beforehand, and this is just a snapshot of the story that you want to tell? Well, when I wrote, when I was writing the first book, when I got started, I had no idea. I was just trying to do a one-off thing. Then, when I introduced that additional storyline, I said to myself, "That part needs to be in a second book." I, I have to finish that in a second because this because that would take away from everything that I've started in this book. Uh, so that's where I said, okay, this is definitely going to be a second book. But then as I planned out the second book, I started thinking, well, I have all this stuff uh, figured out for it, and that's totally going to lead into a third book. Um, you know, the question that I had that I answer in the second book at the beginning of the second book, actually, 
is going to throw humanity for such a loop that it's going to take an entire book just to delve into humanity's issues. And that's kind of where it becomes a chronicle of this is all happening during our space age. Uh, the first book's taking place on Mars. The second one takes place on Mars as well. But it, it opens up to a, um, a whole new side of it. Um, the third one goes and talks about everything that happened on Mars in the first two books and how Earth is handling with that. So the third one's going to be all about Earth. Um, then the fourth one takes one of the sidebar things and reactions from everything that happened in books one, two, and three, and it launches another um, another phase. That's it. It launches a whole new phase on humanity during its space age. Um, there's a, so talk to me a little bit about that that creative process. How do you how do you get started when when you were writing your first book? Do you, did you uh, have an outline? You come up with characters to an outline to the to, to another outline. How does that work? Um, at first, I just started writing. And then, as I was looking at, it, I was like, I I need to definitely wa- write all this stuff down. So I then did a character outline to also help me keep the characters, you know, intact. For one thing, I kept going back and forth with how to write Joe's name, if it was J-O or J-O-E. And I screwed the book up a couple of times just trying to fix that one. Um, so I definitely had to do the outline for the characters and then an outline with the book in terms of how does it start, how does it end, what am I trying to accomplish? I've done that with book two as well. Um, and then pretty much after that, it's just about trying to hit the target in each chapter and then letting it evolve. And if it means adding a chapter, that's what it means. Um, and, and I guess that's kind of where, um, like, as you saw in the book, I, I dropped the chapter names after the invasion happens, you know. That was actually intentional. I figured everything was leading up to it, and now we're there. Everything's happening all at once. You know. I mean, I I still think the chapter titles were there. Is they just uh, they just got blended in, I guess. I guess that works. I'll go with that one. So. What advice would you have to people who want to think about writing their own book? First of all, actually, let, let me back up before you answer that. How long did this take you? You mentioned you started thinking about this in 07, 08. How long did it take you to go from writing something of a of a comic book to a drama to you know now the book is published? And how many rewrites did you have to do? And how many uh, how many times did you have a block before you broke through um i pretty much wrote the book all the way through um around oh by the end of 09 i'd have ish there would be times when there would be chapters that i just i had to go back and skip over and, and go back to write them later because i knew what i wanted to do with some things and other things i didn't and so i just like I put a stop in that chapter, went and wrote the other ones. Um, and then I'd go back as I'm rereading it saying, okay, now I figured out what it is. And that's definitely a hard part, especially remembering to go back to that chapter. Um, and then there are other times when, like, I would just be in the car listening to music on the way home, and I hear a specific song that triggers something and I would just go home and listen to that song on repeat for hours on end until I got that idea jotted down just right. You know, um, there was a night I spent six hours reworking a bunch of chapters to make the 
relationship between Jacob and Joseph much closer because I said it's not quite there. There's it. There's not a lot of emotion behind, um, you know, behind what happens to them because I I didn't build up that that relationship at the beginning, and this song just helped me build that relationship up with them by thinking about it. Um, so, you know, it, and that happened, I'd say about six years ago. So like four years after I'd already written most of the book, I'm still going back and, and looking at it here and there saying this could be improved upon that I could do better on. Um, I probably could have done it faster. It's just that I work so many hours a week and my brain's kind of like, done at the end of the day so it's really hard for me to get in there so there would be years that i would take off a break from the book um and then i was also i created a bunch of photos and stuff studying mars always reading different articles of from science magazines to help me get ideas and help me figure things out like um i remember reading an article about something called graphene, which was this microscopic element that was found off taking scotch, ta uh, masking, ta no, scotch tape to a pencil's, uh, uh, the, was it the granite inside of a pencil? And they just took these microfibers off of it and found this incredibly tough, almost see-through element that could also conduct electricity. And I said, okay, in 2007, 2008, they're coming, they're discovering this really unique item. And they're saying, you know, if they could figure it out, it could literally replace windows and give a building uh, solar panel windows. And I'm thinking, that's incredible. That's amazing. What, what would that technology be like in 100 years? And in 100 years, I created stealth space, uh, stealth uh, EV suits that these guys can literally just, it, it recycles its own energy because the entire thing is made out of the um, this graphene. So it takes all that solar energy, takes that wind energy on Mars surface, and it turns all that into reusable energy within the suit to help regulate the systems and it's also very durable it's bulletproof the only thing that can pretty much destroy is a straight-on explosion which was what happened spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i i'm looking you know looking at solar sails which are used a lot in the book um i'm part of the um uh a space um uh nonprofit charity um do they help you with like this you know researching technology or whatnot yeah sorry uh I was trying to remember the name the planetary society which um is run by bill nye and robert picardo and um they actually have sent out solar sail probes funded by, you know, people who donate to the charity. Um, they've so they are studying solar sail technology today and seeing how it helps with propulsion and with energy use. So taking something basically work, being worked on today, already in use, and seeing how can we. Use that to help with quicker space travel between Mars and Earth in a hundred years from now. So it's try to I try to keep it based in reality-based technologies and sciences. How long did it take you to research all these technologies in order to, to apply it to your book? I've never stopped. Um, I I'm constantly always reading these things but um for the book itself i i'd say about a year 
you know, I was studying like military rankings and procedures to make sure that I got the right stuff done for the Hawkeye Battalion. Um, you know, I, I didn't want it to be, I know it's science fiction, but I still wanted it to be kind of correct. Right. You know, it gives it a, uh, an air of realism. Exactly. And so, so that being said, I think for most people, one of the biggest things is uh, names. How did you come up with all the names for your characters? Well, originally, it was my last name, and it was supposed to be like my family and stuff. And I was the original Joshua in the story. Obviously, I said, I, I should change that. That's not good. Um, and I, I don't know what, I don't remember exactly how I came up with Phallic, but it was literally, it could almost have been an auto-generated name of just trying to think of a, a name that wasn't my own. Well, the reason I mainly ask is because, uh, your, your book has a lot of, you know, multicultural names with a lot of, uh, unique backgrounds. And I was just wondering how that, that all came about. It literally just came out of my head, just trying to think of what made sense. Um, you know, I'd go and if I was doing something from another country or something, I'd go and look up like common names in those areas. Um, for Bali, I, I don't remember exactly how I came up with that last name. Um, yeah, how, how would you pronounce it? Renard Galezi or something? Like uh, Ritzlanese? R- Ritzlanese, wow, all right. It, it, it was very hard for me to pronounce. So that's why Jacob even makes that comment at the beginning of, I can't pronounce that. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't have a hard time pronouncing it. Um, for sure. It, I was When I was reading it, I was like, ah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just skip over it. I'll call him V-Man for now. Yeah, uh, everyone just called him Bali, because who can remember that? Who who can pronounce that? So, um, but there's, uh, that's where I was trying to inject some comedy into it too, because um, even even in the most stressful times, you know, you need to laugh. But uh, yeah, I would just try and see which names fit best. Um, a lot of things I. It was all pretty much made up, though. Um, and you had a lot of Russian in there, which was I was it was kind of surprising to me. Uh, well, the thing about that is, if you look at the history of the space race, it's always been dominated by Russia and the U.S. So it only made sense that they would be very prevalent, and of course China now too. So it would only be prevalent that those three would be the main people going into space and that there would be a heavier influence from those three countries. Um, and, you know, it, it's all still, still kind of mixed, too. But because they were kind of related to each other, it just made sense that they would talk to each other sometimes, more in Russian. And um, I thought it was just some of those interactions were kind of funny. But I was also trying to show that it's a multicultural thing. Like, even with those pa- with the password to get into the um, the shelter, it it was a very complex password because it utilized different languages. Yeah, I, I think Arabic was the most prominent in there with a bunch of alphanumeric numbers. Yeah, it was pretty much a bunch of uh, gibberish thrown together from Google Translate. <laughs> I mean, the the Russian part was Google Translate too, but yeah, I I kind of figured that because when I read it, I'm like, people don't talk like that to one another. Yes, uh, my editor didn't really have much issue. You know, they said it, she she said it works fine, so I was like, okay, cool. It it wor- uh, What I'm what I'll say about that part. I mean, it, it was a very small part of the book. It works. It's just. It's just not how people, uh, not how people talk to one another. But, uh, uh, you know, that being said, I think uh, the the character Ian, 
was probably the most complex in the book, in my opinion, uh, based on his motivations to, to, so Ian was a, uh, a, a pilot, first time pilot of, uh, a, what's it called? The, um, the jumper, the Jasper, the Jaspers. Thank you. Uh, transport a, earth. Yeah. A cargo, a cargo vessel. And, uh, so he, his ship was captured by the Hawkeye battalion and he was kind of forced into servitude of uh, Cartwright. But yeah, something later happened where he was nervous, but then he, I'm not going to spoil it, but he effectively chose Cartwright's side in order to fight against frontier colonies. And I thought that, added a little bit of depth and complexity to the character, which I was kind of expecting from a Cartwright, Capperman, and the rest of the Hawkeye Battalion. So how did you think of his backstory, and how did that come about? Ian's actually one of my favorite characters in the book, so I'm glad you brought him up. He, You're absolutely right. He's a very complex... He's... A character who you see just getting stuck between these two factions. And you have to see how he evolves from being scared for his life, being angry for the loss of his his girlfriend, and then having to get over it and, and find his own place. And, you know, he, he lost pretty much everyone he loved on the Jasper. And then he's just got to he's got to figure it out. And you're watching him go through this and build up his courage and, and figure out what to do next. And as he starts to get there, it's definitely in the opposite direction that you realize that it that it would be but that just goes to show for the hawkeyes they aren't the bad guys in their perspective you know they are very much doing what they believe they may go about it the wrong way but they see it as the only way to get the job done Yeah, their their goal is immediate action, whereas they're sick with the bureaucracy and they're done with it. Well, it's like it's been two hundred. It's been almost two hundred years of, of people putting corporations and greed ahead of humanity, and look at what they all grew up in on Earth. They all grew up in terrible situations on Earth, and they that's why they went to the military, and it wasn't much better when they were there. And so now they're together, united to help, as you said, help the Earth. All right. Um, I don't think I have anything else to ask you about. Do you want to take the floor and uh, promote the book a little bit? Uh, sure. It's um, Right now it's out on ebook. Um, the physical copies I'll have soon from my restaurant marketplace. Where if you order from there, you can go and get anything else we have available on the market. And I'm happy to autograph them, personalize them, whatever you'd like. Um, the about In about a month or so, we'll have uh, physical copies available on Amazon and in all major book retailers. And um, I, I really hope everyone enjoys reading this as much as I enjoyed writing it. Um, please give me feedback too so that i'm working on the second one right now if there's something you like something you didn't like help me be a better writer please because i know i'm (laughs) i'm okay (laughs) um you mean you're not shakespeare what's up with that yeah i'm not i'm no shakespeare (laughs) i'm lucky i can even talk um i I uh, I just I really hope people get to enjoy what's been in my imagination for the last ten twenty years. Uh, thanks for having me on here. Hey man, uh, I enjoyed the book. I thought it was I thought it was fun. It was a nice fun read. 
there were parts in the book that made me go, whoa, I can't wait to read what you have in store for the second book. Um, yeah, I can't wait to see what you have in store for the second book. I'm really excited about the, the little twist surprise that you put in there. And I, I think it'll be very interesting to people who, uh, who love sci-fi to, to learn about that particular aspect of it. But in order to do that, you got to read the book. Just buy it on Amazon. Buy it from the restaurant store. All the descriptions will be in uh, or all the all the places to buy will be in the in the description below. Uh, click on it. Please support Josh. He's a uh, he's a good guy. Been playing Star Trek Fleet Command for a long time. Friend of the show um, and a budding author. And hopefully this this takes off. And I, and I hope you get a lot of good feedback. And I, I hope you can continue with the story and improve it in a way where you know, it can, it could uh, take off for you, man. So I'm really happy because it's, it's not easy to be a writer. And it's not easy to get published. There's a, plenty of books that people turn down for a, a variety of reasons. So to go through that process is, would you say it was painstaking? It was, um, I never, I was having a very tough time getting published. Um, that's actually why I went with Amazon. Uh, I was able to just self self publish it myself, and um, you know I just had to pay the fees to get the physical books and and get it on the ebooks and all that stuff. And if it looks kind of uh, created at home, that's because it was. <laughs> well, guys, thank you very much for listening. Please support Josh. Um, buy the book. Give him comments. I think he did a great job with it. I really do. Um, being a first-time author out and all, and willing to take criticism, I think that's awesome. And thanks again for stopping by. Thanks for having me. And again, subscribe, like, comment, do all those things that everybody asks of you on YouTube. Um, this has been Trek Talk with Tech and Kirk. I'm Techman16, and uh, we'll see you guys next time.